Today, we will discuss how facilities and programs provide for their players on three different levels, youth slash developmental, collegiate, and finally, the professional level. You will hear segments from three interviews, each correlated by the sports industry. The interviews will elaborate on funding for youth sports, NIL deals, and finally, head injuries in sports. The first interview is about funding for youth sports. Hello, Miss. How are you today? Good. Please introduce yourself to the podcast. Yep. Uh, I am Samantha Etherington. I'm the director of ops for LSU Soccer. Uh, I've worked here for 18 months, uh, and I'm from the UK. <laughs> yes, it's really nice, Miss. So my first question to you is, how long have you been involved in the industry of football, soccer, and what made you interested in it? So I grew up playing soccer. I mean, in England, it's the, the national sport. So I've been playing since I was eight years old. I'm 32 now. I'm not going to do the math, so I'm sure you can. Uh, but then I came over to the US, played college soccer, finished when I was 21, and have been involved ever since in, in either a, a coaching capacity uh, up until last of June of 2021 is when I kind of entered the administrative side, being a director of ops for the soccer team. So you would definitely say that uh, being a player was, the experience was good enough that you wanted to continue working in the sports industry, yeah. albeit not as a player. Yeah, I wasn't, I don't think I was good enough to be a professional player. Uh, I didn't even try to be honest to be a professional player, just once I finished college, figured the career was over, but knew I wanted to be involved in and love the game at such a high level like even as a player love the tactical side of it and actually teaching the game to, to teammates so it was a natural transition to, to coaching I, I completely agree with you this is why i'm a sports administration student and miss um as you said you grew up playing football here you work with um lots of young women as we just saw in training even with some high school teams so how do you view the impact youth football programs and youth sports have on communities? I think it's massive. I think Baton Rouge is a, is a key example and LSU soccer camps is a key example. So when I when we got here, one of our goals was to have really big soccer camps. This past summer, we probably had over 750 kids come through and do either a youth camp or an advanced camp where they get to stay overnight. And, and as we were setting that up last year, there was interest, but there wasn't, uh, you know, there was interest once the camps opened. Now, uh, we are prepping for this upcoming summer, summer of 23, and I'm already getting emails and texts and calls saying, like, when's the next camp? We're going on vacation, but we don't want to schedule it around the dates that you have camp. Do you know when they are? So I think we've had a, we've had a massive impact on the community in that sense. I think Baton Rouge Soccer Club is massive for this community and it's a growing sport in the South. I think every part, every region of America has kind of a different sport that pulls them in. Soccer has never really been the number one sport over here, but it's maybe been a bit more popular in California or Florida or, or the Northeast. Louisiana, it's really grown and I think a lot of kids in the Baton Rouge community actually play soccer at Baton Rouge Soccer Club. Some of the games that I went to, I remember a big crowd of um, Baton Rouge Soccer Club and yeah. like red t-shirts. Yeah. Definitely. And 
the f the funding for these camps does LSU help with this, or would you say like the local community and like the mayors of Baton Rouge do they also provide like funding for like? No, so it's like it's a paid camp. So you might come to camp and you pay whatever the registration fee is. So all the funding comes from the people that are signing up for camp. This interview is about paying college athletes. Hello, my name is Bridget Monahan, and today is Thursday, February 2nd, 2023, and I am interviewing Keyshawn Black about his experience with NIL deals. Okay, um, introduce yourself. I'm Keyshawn Black. I go to the University of Georgia. I run track and field. I'm a sprinter. I'm a finance major. Uh, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. Born and raised. I interviewed Keyshawn about the ins and outs of NIL deals while focusing on his NIL deals, mainly why he signs them, what he gets out of them, and if NIL deals have gone too far in his opinion. Keyshawn gave me a very insightful look into paying college athletes. Similarly to the previous interview about youth sports, I asked Keyshawn if he felt like athletes were supported through youth sports. He said, Supported all because you ain't made a name for yourself yet. So it's just all about earning your respect and making a name for yourself and, and whatever you do. So whenever you do that, you'll start to get the recognition you deserve and that you want. So. Okay. While going through the process of being recruited, where NIL deals a big conversation topic between you and the coaches? Not really. I was mainly concerned about my stipend checks. Stipend means that uh, we get checks monthly from the athletic association to like basically live and shit like that. So. I was mainly concerned about those numbers. I wasn't really thinking about NIL because <clears throat> we track NIL is kind of like separate from, it's out of my coaches like, and it's, uh, mainly football, only uh, it's in the coaches' hands because the teams get so much NIL money. So if they want to be a recruit, they'll offer to recruit some of it to convince him to commit to the school. I asked Keyshawn if he had any NIL deals, and he said he had four. He told me about a few of them by saying, So my latest one, I did a NIL with Reebok. It was a shoe deal. So basically they sent me two pairs of shoes, and I had to post, I had to take pictures in them and make one post, and then I had to make a video, create a video and post again. So I only had to post twice, and... I get to keep the shoes, of course, and I had to tag them. It was kind of through like an NIL agency. It's called Post Games, and they kind of got the deal for me, I guess, because I wasn't directly in contact with Reebok. <clears throat> so I guess you can kind of compare that to a management, but it's kind of different. Hmm. And then another one, I. Another one, I got one with PSD underwear. So they'll send me like underwear and expect the story post when they get here. So I like 
just take a picture of the underwear, like, in the package or whatever, or however I want to do it, and just tag them, and they'll repost it, stuff like that. So, they're just trying to get a little publicity. And then another one, one of my first ones I did was with a glasses company. Uh, they didn't really, I post, it's the same, it's basically the same as the PSB one. They send, like, free stuff all the time, free apparel, and, like, so I make, like, a... Say I make like a TikTok video or something like that, just like <clears throat> talking good about them. Yeah, pay me for that, however much. But like a story post is like different amount. It's like a little less effort. So the more you do, basically the more you get paid. So like the video, like videos, I get paid the most. Like a story post, get paid the least. Like just a regular feed post is kind of like in the middle. When I asked Keyshawn if he felt like he was adequately funded and resourced by the companies he was doing deals with, he said, I yeah, of course, because I wouldn't even entertain a company if it wasn't a good deal. So I feel like the ones that I did decide to do, I feel like I got a good deal behind it. Because I wouldn't just do anything for any type of money. It had to be something that I'm interested in. I specifically asked him if he thought NIL deals had gone too far, and his response was, No, because I, before NIL was a thing, athletes didn't get paid, and there was a lot of athletes struggling to live, and I feel like uh, we can't get jobs because it's a lot of time taken out of our day being with the Athletic Association. So that's the whole reason behind it, basically, behind the money part and stuff like that. I followed this question up by mentioning the transfer portal. Every day on social media, we see news updates of recruits begging schools to release them from their letter of intent because the deal wasn't going to be as valuable as planned. Even current NCAA athletes with starting positions are hitting the portal to make some extra money. I mean, I don't really care for it. Some athletes want money. They like they want. They come from nothing, basically. Some of them, and they just want to put themselves and their family in a good position, a healthy living position early on before like league and stuff. They don't want to get to college and have to worry about funds and stuff like that. So was there ever a time when you considered something more than the school's track program slash athletic department when deciding whether you were interested in the school? Yeah, like with Oregon and stuff like that, I used to talk to the football team when I was there and they were interested in me. So that definitely caught on my attention being a dual sport athlete. It's more opportunity. The final interview is about head injuries in sports. Hi, I'm Colin Benoit, and I'm here interviewing Gavin Sachs. Hello, I'm Gavin Sachs. And this interview is for English 2000, so we'll just get started. So the first question is, um, what can you recall? Well, first, let's ask, how did your head injury occur? So, quick story. I, believe it or not, was at my brother's tackle football game, and I was on the sidelines with my friend, and we had a buddy who came over, and we were just throwing the football. We had a buddy come over and say, hey, do you mind if I throw with y'all? Eventually, we were playing pitch and catch, and we decided to play a game called kickoff, if you haven't heard of that. It's as simple as it sounds. It's 2v1, basically. You kick, and then you try to return it without the other two tackling you. Well, I was returning at the time, and this kid who... I was nine, 
and this kid who must have been like 11 or 12, I caught the ball, I was running, he tackled me, and obviously it wasn't a tackle that did it, but on my way down, I kicked back and slammed my head on the ground. Um, a short period of time that's obviously super, super foggy, and my parents ended up bringing me to the hospital, um, where I was diagnosed, if you will, with a minor concussion. All right, so what what can you recall happening just prior to the actual injury, like, occurring? So the funny thing is, in the moment, obviously, you're perfectly fine, but ever since then, even with it being 10 years ago now, uh, the whole day is kind of foggy. Like, I don't yeah. remember. I couldn't tell you the colors my brother's team was wearing. I couldn't tell you where we were in the state of Louisiana. But exactly prior to the incident, basically, it's all I remember. is me with my friend playing pitch and catch, and then next thing I know is some adult helping me up off the ground. Every NFL team is required. This is part of the NFL's concussion protocols that they have laid out and it says every nfl team is required to have at least one inc which is a which is a type of doctor that's like certified in x and their expertise is in head trauma it stands for an independent neurological consultant so every nfl team is required to have one and that's like league wide Mm -hmm. so do you think how do you think high schools and like lower level sports could go about trying to get one for for like their level obviously i don't think having one at every school would be realistic but other ways that that lower level sports could uh get one get a get a inc or some kind of some kind of professional that their expertise is head trauma well if you think about every high school football game they will always have police officers they will always have first responders you never right. ready with an ambulance because things do go wrong things do happen like that if they could simply get the, what did you say, INC? Yeah. If they could get one, heck, once a week just to check on players or check equipment, go through the protocols that they need to do, I think almost if the community could provide one or if it's a voluntary basis thing, you know, if it's easy enough to get a first responder at a football game, I think it should be simple enough to get an INC at a football game. So do we were talking about like what coaches can do. Do you think do you think coaches can they teach their players safer ways to play or I mean I know at some point it's out of the reach of the coach but like what do you and you're you've played sports for a few years like what do you think coaches could have done better to enforce like the safer safer way of playing? That's I think you know baseball and basketball I think that's a pretty simple thing for the coach to do. There's things that you can intentionally do in baseball and basketball that can get other people hurt. There's easy ways to prevent it. I think football is such an, football and probably hockey and lacrosse are such aggressive contact sports that like, I mean, what are you supposed to do? It's kind of built into the game plan and into the roots of the game that, you know, you hit him hard, you get him on the ground, you know, by whatever means possible, it's almost gladiator style, you know, it's just, there's only so much a coach can do, let alone a player. Because there's times, you look at the NFL, there's times when a player's running out of bounds and the defender that's going to tackle him has so much momentum, he almost can't get out of the way. Uh, they can throw a flag for it and they get a penalty. Maybe they get a fine after the game, but sometimes there's things they can't do to prevent it. And not just as out of the coach's hands, but it's 
sometimes out of the players' hands, you know? Yeah, I know, like, seeing these types of injuries can be a little scary, and you see, you know, like, the NFL player Tua, which got brought to, like, national attention, Mm -hmm. he obviously hit his head, obviously got up stumbling, and somehow they put him back in that same game. Do you think if a player is showing such obvious symptoms of having something's obviously not right, but they clear this, like, basic line concussion test, do you think it should be mandatory for leagues and even lower-level lower sports to, like, like they have to come out of the game if they're showing that that kind of, like, they're not obviously not in it mm-hmm. after, after an obvious hit to the head? I think not even coming from me who's had a concussion before, just the way I think, I think it's terrible that they put him back in. I think winning a football game, I know it's professional level, I know these people are paid millions of dollars, but I don't think winning a football game is ever worth a man's life, whether it's cost him his life or could be something as simple as a career-ending injury or even an injury for four more weeks, you know? I just can't imagine it's worth it for a half of football. It, uh, Because I know what you're talking about. Uh, he gets up stumbling like his linemen almost help him mm-hmm. walk back to the line of scrimmage. Right. And somehow, after halftime, he comes back in. I just... I think it's something the NFL needs to look at because I absolutely don't think it's normal after a football player for someone to get up stumbling and for them to just brush it off like it's, you know, a regular toe injury, a regular finger injury. You know, it's something a little bit more major. Yeah, I mean, even you saw, like, even that, even though they put him back in, he obviously, they compared his stats to where, like, in the first half, you know, he was playing up to his normal speed of play, and then you take where that head injury happened, and then they compared his stats after that, and there was a clear drop-off. So obviously something wasn't right. So there was some kind of flaw in the protocol. So, like, what do you think What do you think they could do to make the protocol better and more, like, well-rounded for every athlete? I think, yeah, while it may start with NFL because that was the one brought to light, I think um, it goes for all sports, really, especially contact ones that you need – take a step back, you need to go over your protocol and think, will will this seriously in-depth like measure his cognitive abilities and his ability to walk, to balance, to think, to move? Because um, it wasn't a coincidence, in my opinion, that his stats got worse after he went back in, after taking that hit. You know, it wasn't just soreness, the, the usual, like, getting up after a big hit. It was clearly something worse, and... Uh, I think the protocol itself in all sports should be taken very, very seriously. Obviously, they do. Obviously, there's laws protecting them, but uh, I think I've said it five times now. When it truly does come down to, like, someone's health, it should be taken at the most serious matter. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, and I appreciate appreciate your time. It's about all I got. I agree. Thank you.